and as a result, he missed his court date through no fault of his own. Inmates sort of know the process. You know, they know that they're supposed to get booked and then move along in the facility closer to potential release. Not seeing that happen and not understanding why um, is really leading to a lot of a lot of tension within the walls. Protests, politics, and policy. It's the only way we're going to change the system. I'm Sarah Fedsky. This is St. Louis on the Air. Last month, things got ugly at the St. Louis City Justice Center, often known as the CJC. Detainees at the downtown jail took over a floor of the facility. They broke windows, they set fires. A guard was injured, and for nearly seven hours, the detainees held the floor while spectators watched the carnage from the streets below. St. Louis Mayor Lida Krusen appointed a task force to look into conditions at the jail. In a little over a month, they conducted 13 meetings. They garnered input from the public and testimony from multiple organizations, including the public defender, the sheriff's office, the police department, and Congresswoman Cori Bush. On advice of city council, they weren't permitted to meet with detainees who were involved in the February 6th incident, other than unit representatives. Now, that task force was led by the Reverend Daryl Gray. Last Friday, it delivered its report. And as the Reverend Gray explained to us earlier this morning, it found some truly troubling facts. The CJC is is overcrowded right now, and that poses a huge problem. Uh, You've got a facility that probably houses right now over 800 people, maybe 900 people, but its maximum capacity is around 650. Uh, There's absolutely no place uh, for the detainees to go outside. And so you're in a building for 24 hours a day unless you go to court. You can't go to court right now. There's a bottleneck in the judicial system, primarily because of COVID. And and those were the three things that we looked at, uh, that we were were charged at looking at. Uh, The concerns uh, by the detainees as it related to uh, food and water and temperature, uh, clothing, uh, health concerns. Uh, The second floor of of the Justice Center is basically, uh, it's a mixed bag. Uh, it, it's, it, it's chaos uh, in its purest sense. And the way in which uh, detainees on that second floor, you know, herded into small cells uh, that are supposed to house you know, seven to 10 people. And sometimes you've got 30 people in there. You've got detainees on that second floor in a holding cell for more than 24 hours, which is illegal. You had one detainee that was in the holding cell on the second floor for 38 days. And so trying to get through that maze of things, the, the, the lack of communication between the Department of Justice, I mean, excuse me, the, the Justice Center and the Sheriff's Office and the Police Department, you know, no, no collective conversation to, to help people through the system. Uh, and to make sure that those who were eventually housed within the Justice Center uh, got to a, a place where 
moving from the first floor to the second floor to a ward, that that wouldn't take days or weeks on end. And, and, and so we felt that that led to the hostility and the violence. And so those were some of the things that, that we felt needed to, to be addressed. And that is the Reverend Daryl Gray, chair of the Corrections Task Force. The task force made 68 recommendations. It highlights 13 as urgent. The Reverend Gray says the most crucial is an independent civilian review board for corrections. Because this oversight board uh, is a board that will be able to work specifically to address any and all issues uh, that come out of that, that justice center. Uh, or any correction facility for that matter, not just uh, the Justice Center downtown, but the workhouse included. And so I think that that is the single most important recommendation that needs to be acted on immediately. And I think if you do that as well, then what you do, you will show the public, you'll show the detainees, correctional officers, uh, family members who agonize over what is happening in the Justice Center, that the city of St. Louis is serious about criminal justice reform. That is the Reverend Daryl Gray. Now, the report offers a lot to chew on and many recommendations for change, but some of its major findings would not be news to viewers of Five on Your Side. Even before the task force submitted its report, crime reporter Christine Byers broke stories about how staffing shortages and conflicts between police and corrections officers played roles in the February 6th riot. And she joins us today to discuss what she's learned. Christine Byers, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So I want to talk about these staffing issues. This was a subject of a report that you published last week, uh, just a day or two before the task force report came out. And this was eye-opening. Just how short-staffed was the City Justice Center on the morning of February 6th? So the mayor's office said that the Division of Corrections was about 72 people short on the day of the riots. And I reached out to the director of personnel for the city and said, how can this be? How can it get that far down? And to my surprise, he said that the Division of Corrections had not actually asked him to hire anybody um, for months. And that actually about a year ago, uh, to the day of the riot, he said that the Division of Corrections was nearly fully staffed. Hmm. So a year ago, they had the staff they needed. What changed in that year? So the Division of Personnel um, director speculated that they were sort of dialing down their staff uh, due to the possible closure of the medium security institution, also known as MSI and also known as the workhouse, and that there was a desire not to hire, uh, obviously, because if that were to close, they would be reducing the staff and they didn't want to hire people um, for that purpose. Um, The uh, city provided the director of operations to me to address this issue in terms of why did the staff get down so low? And he explained that they had made a request back uh, last year in June or July to hire about 32 corrections officers and that they didn't get a response from the Division of Personnel until sometime in December. Hmm. Um, 
But what I found interesting was, you know, since the 72 number had come to light, and according to the jail task force report you referenced earlier, it was actually um, the jail task force calculated it at 88 people short, Hmm. um, that when this came to light, suddenly there was uh, a very quick effort to get people interviewed. The Division of Personnel uh, gave the city 80 applicants to interview in one week. Whoa. So I don't understand, uh, and it hasn't been clearly explained to me yet, how it can go for so long, um, you know, with the staff dwindling down, dwindling down, and then suddenly when when there's a crisis, they magically have all these applicants ready to go. And it seems like from your reporting, there's a little discrepancy between what the Division of Personnel is saying and what the Director of Operations, who works for the mayor, is saying. Do you have any sense of of who's telling the truth here? Like, did the city um, call for at least some people back in June? Yeah, I mean, that is that is proven. You know, they provided the the personnel request form to me, you know, sort of showing the, the request for 32 people that was made. Um, back in June, and then an additional person in December, an additional person in January. Um, so was personnel just dragging its feet that it took six months to process that request? <clears throat> well, that's a question I've I've gone back to the director of personnel to ask, and I'm waiting for a response on that. Um, but clearly, the applicants were uh, coming in to the tune of, um, according to a memo I got from him, from the director of personnel, they had 100 applicants um, over that period of time Hmm. that were coming in. So in in a request for 32 people back in June or July, um, and that being the only request, certainly wasn't enough to, you know, plug the plug up the hemorrhaging, if you will, of the staff leaving. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I mean, that wouldn't have been nearly enough to, to look at the number that they say they're short-staffed. And as you say, there's this new energy to deal with this in light of what happened at the jail on February 6th. But as your previous reporting makes clear, there were other uprisings at the jail. This probably should have been on someone's radar before that. Tell me what you learned about those. Yes, there were um, previous uprisings, if you will, that were within the jail. So there weren't, you know, the obvious signs outside. There weren't windows breaking and fire starting and furniture flying out the windows and all that stuff. But there were uh, disruptions, certainly, within the jail. I know several times I drove downtown myself and saw uh, police cars sort of surrounding the building and lo and behold, find out, you know, something's going on in the jail. So there were certainly... Um, a series of eruptions going on, uh, and, and tension was building, you know, and in some of my earlier reporting, right after the riot happened, I got a hold of some internal memos from the police leaders that managed sort of the first floor. So uh, police officers and civilian police staff manage the first floor, which is where people come in and get booked. Mm-hmm. And they then hand them off, if you will, uh, to the second floor if those people are going to be staying for any extended length of time. And so that's when they become under the care uh, and control of correction staff. And so pol- these, according to these police memos that I got a hold of, um, they had been raising concerns for months, uh, sending memos and emails to corrections officials and being virtually ignored, according <laughs> to them. Um, And one example they cited was of a man who was housed in an isolation cell for three days completely unnecessarily because 
They claimed that the second floor was unwilling to take him. And as a result, he missed his court date and the police had to, uh, you know, violate him or whatever the process is that they had to do there for him missing his court date through no fault of his own. Um, And then inmates sort of know the process. You know, they know that they're supposed to get booked and then move along in the facility and that moving along means they're closer to potential release. And so not seeing that happen and not understanding why, um, according to the police memos, at least, was really leading to a lot of a lot of tension within the walls. So the police were bringing this to the attention of corrections officials trying to get this situation changed. Were you able in your reporting to figure out what happened after that? No, so far, um, you know, uh, Dale Glass, the jail commissioner, has not sort of responded to um, what happened to those memos. I know in talking with Reverend Gray, the chairman of the task force, he said that Dale Glass told him that he was unaware of the memos. Um, So there's a document trail. (laughs) You've seen these memos. These memos were at least sent to him, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So it sounds like some serious communication breakdowns here. Now that everything that happened on February 6th happened, do you have the sense that this has the attention of corrections officials, that, that they're paying attention to these complaints from police as, as well as from detainees? Well, I think they have to. I mean, uh, you know, certainly first and foremost is the locks. Um, they need to get those locks fixed. I know that the efforts are underway to do that. Um, they got the contractor, you know, ready to go on that end. And that's a $1.5 million uh, endeavor mm. for the city to do. And, I mean, it's not like they discovered the locks were broken, uh, you know, on February 6th. So, you know, that's another question that's out there. Um, you know, Jamila Nasheed on the first day of the jail task force meeting she went after uh, Dale Glass and said, why? Why aren't they getting fixed? Why haven't they been fixed? And that sort of thing. So she was very interested in that. And, you know, he explained that it's an aging facility. And those locks were um, on that floor, that particular floor where this happened, were built for um, a little bit lower security type of inmates. Mm. And now the jail population has changed during covid they're really only housing the very most violent offenders. So they're a different caliber um, and that. So, But everyone has to keep in mind, too, here that the detainees within that facility um, are also uh, those who have been charged with a crime and have, you know, they're in jail. They're not in prison yet. Mm-hmm. So they haven't had their chance in court. They have not yet been found guilty. They're, they're waiting right. their day. We're talking to Christine Byers. She's the crime reporter at Five on Your Side. That's uh, our partners over at KSDK. Um, Christine, there's a lot of things in this new report um, out from the task force that are worth talking about, and some of them are a little more systemic. I thought there were some interesting comments from public defender Matthew Mahaffey. He talked about how the average length of stay of detainees has gone way up, um, and this is obviously due to COVID. They haven't been having jury trials um, happening in the St. Louis courts, other than for, I think, a very brief period when they had things going on there. Um, But he points to this as a problem. He also talks about some problems with the circuit attorney's office. This is a quote from the report. Uh, Mr. Mahaffey, quote, cited his experience with the city attorney's office and their consistency in stonewalling records requests, which results in barriers to defending clients. Further barriers are being placed by the circuit attorney's office as recommendations for charges are not being shared in a timely manner. Does circuit attorney Kim Garth 
Gardner bear some serious responsibility for just how long people have been stuck being held in the CJC? Well, certainly, according to the Public Defender's Office, she does. Um, And he also talked about in the report her, quote, problematic use of grand juries uh, rather than preliminary trials. Um, And he feels that, you know, what she will do is file charges by complaint um, and taking those cases to grand jury results in unnecessary delays as well. So he had plenty to say about that. Um, yeah, I thought that was an, an interesting section of the report. That's something you don't often hear um, people who want to reform the criminal justice system talking about. But he's saying because of that way, people are basically stuck in in jail waiting for weeks for things to go through this grand jury process. Exactly. And so... Um, Like you said, I think you mentioned already that they're spending an average of 146 days before a probable cause determination is made at this Mm -hmm. point. Yeah, and that seems like a huge problem here. Um, The sources that you've talked to, do they say that there's there's plans afoot to try to address that? Um, I haven't reached out yet to Kim Gardner's office to see if she does have a response to, um, you know, the public defender's complaints and the recommendations that were made by the task force. So I'm still waiting to see what she'll be saying about that. We do want to mention that there's a link to the task force's report that can be found on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org. You can also find it on St. Louis on the Air's Twitter page if that's something that you want to read for yourself. Now, when we talk about these more systemic issues, um, there are a lot of progressives who have been agitating for change. And I think it's fair to say that uh, Matthew Mahaffey, the public defender, he gives voice to some of their concerns about this, just people being locked up before trial in general. Um, and, And many of those people weren't thrilled with the report that they say preserves the existing system. Well, Reverend Daryl Gray, he is the chair of that task force. He's also a civil rights leader who has led protests in St. Louis. Here's what he told us about that. There were people who called me and said, Reverend Gray, don't do it because you being on the task force helps legitimize what they're trying to do. And people felt that it was a stall tactic. And I responded simply, if a person comes to me and they're hungry and unemployed, what's the first thing that I should do as a pastor? The first thing is to feed them. And the second thing is to help them to find employment. The detainees came to us with their immediate concerns. I felt that was important to deal with the immediate concern and then work to deal with the long-term ones. That's how I felt. That's why I asked to be on the task force. And I have absolutely no regrets and I would submit to the critics of the task of the task force and the recommendations. Read them. We've we 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 talked about a lot of things, and we've come a lot further with these recommendations. Uh, with thirteen meetings and little over a month, than a lot of people have done with lawsuits and and everything else. I think that we don't have the luxury of doing one thing at a time. We have to work outside in the streets, protests. We have to uh, lobby government. We have to submit our civil uh, complaints, but we also have to work to, to create policy, protests, politics, and policy. It's the only way we're gonna change the system. That is the Reverend Daryl Gray. Uh, Christine, they're asking for a lot of big changes in this report. They have a ton of action items here. Do you think they'll get a lot of what they're asking? 
Well, another thing that they're asking for, too, is that they remain in effect. Um, They want to become sort of a a subcommittee of the Public Safety Committee for the Board of Aldermen. And um, Alderman Joe Vaccaro was a part of the task force. So um, I'm thinking that there is a possibility there that going forward, they could remain intact and see these recommendations through. Hmm. So you think there's a chance that, that that could be allowed to happen? It's possible. I mean, and of course, as we all know, we're just um, not far away from a a new election coming up here for a new mayor. So it'll, and this task force was commissioned, of course, as you said, by Mayor Krusen. So it'll be interesting to see if the next mayor will be interested in keeping this task force appointed by uh, her predecessor, if they'll be interested in keeping it going and in what fashion and and how they plan to utilize these recommendations. Christine, one last thing I wanted to make sure to ask you about today, and there's certainly a lot of problems in this report that are not related to COVID-19, but it's so clear that so many of the conditions that are are problematic, everything from how long it takes to to get your right to a trial to the conditions when you're inside the jail are related to COVID-19. I was really struck by this mention in the report that detainees were given 60 minutes of free phone time each month as sort of a mitigation for how tough things were under COVID protocols. That just seems like so little time when you're stuck there for months on end. These guys are under some tough conditions in there. Yeah, I mean, that it's, you know, 60 minutes for a month. Um, <laughs> it's, it's nothing. Just, it doesn't seem like much, no. Um, but, you know, they're, they're limited in a lot of what they can do. I mean, a lot of the, the reasons why, you know, rec time and, and all these other things were cut back was out of caution, you know, mm-hmm. for COVID and trying to con- control it. Um, now, the city's director of health has made several recommendations based on you know, the latest information, ways to sort of start to loosen those restrictions and maybe get some more um, some more freedom back and, and more flexibility back for the inmates. But, um, you know, again, a lot of it goes back to the staffing issue when uh, all these things are great. But if you don't have the right amount of people there to make sure they happen, um, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And one last note here, uh, the, the task force report says that just 17 of the 65 detainees that were offered the vaccine have accepted mm-hmm. it. So it sounds like this COVID-19 situation and some of these protocols, these can't go away in the immediate future. There's still a risk of COVID spreading in that jail. Exactly. I mean, that was, you know, pretty astounding that they offered it to that many inmates and they had so few um agree to take the vaccine. So that was that was certainly a setback. Well, the whole situation is pretty troubling. I know you're going to stay on top of this issue, um, and I hope that we can get you to come back as, as you continue to report on it and, and figure out whether they can get this staffing up and, and what needs to happen here next. So uh, Five on Your Side crime reporter Christine Byers, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. And you can find Christine's reporting at ksdk.com. We'll also get that linked on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.